Thank you for listening to the First Christian Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. Here you will be able to listen to all of our Sunday morning sermons. Be sure to hit the subscribe or follow button so you don't miss a sermon. Enjoy today's message. Thy kingdom come on earth. Great. Thanks for joining us today as we continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount. As I've been thinking about this this week, I thought, you know, I'm already intimidated by preaching this series and preaching this Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus basically is, this is his inaugural address, his first sermon series And how can you better on perfection because God actually is teaching in this moment. And so there was no learner's permit. He went straight to driving, unlike myself and all of us. And what Jesus is saying and what we're going to look at this week is he's going to talk about changing the temperature in the room and how we are an influence in in the room, every room that we enter. And if you're joining us online today, I'm, I'm just really thankful that you are with us, and I hope you're changing the room temperature for the positive wherever you are. If you're in your pajamas or still in bed or drinking your first cup of coffee this morning, we're glad you're with us. If you're joining us from Florida or from Canada or Nairobi, Africa, We're thankful that you're with us, but it's just not the same because you can't change this room temperature because you're not with us. And I just want to appreciate Dan and the worship team because they knock it out of the park every week and it prepares my heart to preach because some days I'm a little bit more tired than others and I'm not as ready to go, but, but, but. Worship prepares my heart to preach, and I believe worship prepares your heart to hear what God has to say. So when we think about our culture today and what is going on, and we look around and and we recognize maybe that humanism or capitalism doesn't really work, and that there is an end to technology and and what we thought as maybe we were growing up, that man would be the answer of all things and technology would fix things and we would live forever. And maybe as we reflect back, we realize that that is not so. That there is an end of all things. And man is not the measure, but God is. And that knowledge is not enough to fix the massive brokenness in this world. And Jesus, as he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, reminds us of that. And I want to give a general warning that the Sermon on the Mount can easily be mistaught. So I need to be very, very careful as I teach and preach through the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus is the final word in regard to what I am going to be preaching and teaching. And if you're excited about the Sermon on the Mount, I just want to tell you next week I'm going to talk about anger and divorce. And so invite a friend because it's going to be, it's going to be tough. 
And it's going to be challenging. And it's going to be otherworldly. And it's going to be supernatural. And, I, and when I say that, I say that tongue-in-cheek because Jesus doesn't hold anything back in the Sermon on the Mount. And I want you to recognize that many people hate the Sermon on the Mount. And you probably didn't know that. In fact, some of you that were raised in church probably just hear it and say, well, I've heard this before and I know this, but do you really know this? Virginia Stem Owens wrote God and Man at Texas A&M a few years ago. This is kind of dated. And, and the students that she taught were freshman literature class, and they came from middle class conservative and even co- politically conservative families that we would, when we would think of them. Maybe our own kids. You can think of them that way. And, and when she assigned her freshman English class, the Sermon on the Mount, a selection in their rhetoric textbook taken from the King James Version, which is probably the way a lot of us learned it. And the first paper she picked up after the assignment, it began with, in my opinion, religion is one big hoax. That's how it started. And, and then this, this essay from one of her students, ended with, there is an old saying that you shouldn't believe everything you read, and it applies in this case. Then it goes on, and and she asks herself this question, why were these students so angry at what they read and so blithe in their dismissal of it? You see, her own Sunday school instruction on the Sermon on the Mount, she came to respectfully and reverentially as we should. But then she read on, The stuff the churches preach is extremely strict and allows for almost no fun without thinking it it is a sin or is it a sin or not. Another one wrote, I did not like the essay Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read and made me feel like I had to be perfect and no one is. And then again, the things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman is adultery. That is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I have ever read. And then one, one other student. In this essay, the author explains the doctrines of an era in the past which cannot be brought into the future in the same context. This a- essay now cannot be taken in the same way as it was written. It can be used as a guideline for good manners. Now, in all the time that I've ever read or studied the Sermon on the Mount, I have never thought of it as applying to good manners. And so this is the way the professor came away from this. She says, The Bible remains offensive to honest, ignorant ears, just as it was in the first century. For me, that somehow validates its significance. Whereas the scriptures almost lost their characteristically astringent flavor during the past century, the current widespread biblical illiteracy should catapult us into a situation more nearly approximating that of their original first century audience. The Bible will no longer be choked by cloying cultural associations. What she's saying is that as her students was reading the Sermon on the Mount from the King James Version, they were hearing it 
as if they were hearing it for the first time and they were being called to Jesus' words in that high standard, just like the first century heard it. You see, because the standards that Jesus puts in front of us are insanely high. I want you to hear that. I want you to feel that. That Jesus was the only one that ever lived out the standards of the Sermon on the Mount. The preacher was the only one that actually was able to do what he preached. And so, if you read the Sermon on the Mount and you feel absolutely terrible about yourself because you can't live up to the standards that Jesus is placing on you, then you're reading it wrong. Now, should you feel convicted? Absolutely. But should you feel condemned? Absolutely not. Because if you're hearing it by being condemned, you don't understand the grace of God. And, and, and you've got to realize that when you go before the Father and you ask forgiveness, you are forgiven. Let me say that again because you need to hear this. Let me lean into you. When you go before the Father and you confess your sin, you are forgiven once and for all. You don't have to keep on confessing it. Now, you may have to tell yourself and remind yourself over and over again, maybe hundreds of times, when you think and you feel the guilt, and you may feel condemned. But that's not coming from God. That's not coming from our Father. And remind yourself, I have been forgiven. I have been forgiven. I have been forgiven. God is faithful to his word, and he does not lie. So you might ask the question, so why is the Sermon on the Mount up front and center? Because it's the teaching of Jesus. It's his inaugural address. It embodies his whole teaching. But you've got to understand this audience. You see, the Jews were expecting an earthly kingdom. They were expecting a political kingdom to overthrow the Roman government and overthrow the, the, the hierarchy of the day and to transform the culture. And that's not what they got. And folks, today we still try to politically weaponize Christianity to make it something that it is not. It's not an earthly kingdom, it's a spiritual kingdom, and that's what Jesus is explaining. Jesus is explaining his upside-down kingdom that no government and no political movement will ever achieve because it's the kingdom of God, it's the kingdom of heaven, and it only comes through the Holy Spirit of God. The only way is through Jesus. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is directed toward disciples and not cultural Christians. If you're just going back and forth to church on Sunday morning and you're living the way you want to, this is not for you. But if you want to be a disciple of Jesus and adhere to his teaching, an apprentice of Jesus committed to Christ, then this is for you. And Jesus goes on in verse 13 of chapter 5 of Matthew, and he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, I want to talk about salt for a minute. 
I ain't, I'm a Hoosier. I make no apologies. Wherever you're from, I hope you're proud of where you're from. I, I thank God that I, I'm a Hoosier. I, I almost Hoosiered, Hoosiered it. I don't know what that is, a Hoosier. But I thank God for Indiana sweet corn every year. And I love it. And what only makes it better, in fact, I'm a sweet corn pig. I don't know if you know any sweet corn pigs, but I can eat a lot of sweet corn as, as much. I, I will make a meal out of sweet corn and, and Indiana grown ripened tomatoes as well. But what makes them better is butter, butter, butter. But the only reason, and, and not margarine, mom, if you're watching, I don't use margarine anymore. It's against my religion. But the only reason why I put butter on it is so I can put salt on the corn. I've been known to eat 10, 12 corn on the cobs or more, just as much as I possibly can. Because the salt adds flavor to what we're eating. And I dread the day when my doctor says no more salt because your blood pressure is too high. And it'd just be wrong to do that. But salt adds flavor. And so Christian, every room you go into, you add flavor in that environment. You might have to lather yourself up with butter and pour a little salt on it. But that's what we're meant to do. But also you got to recognize that salt is... An additive. The corn is the main deal. The tomatoes are the main deal. I've never invited somebody over to my house and said, Hey, I've got some really great salt. Come on over. We'll have salt for supper. Just doesn't happen, does it? And so we are an additive in every place we go. In our homes, in our families, in our neighborhoods, where we work. We are the additive. And we should add flavor to the room. But realize this, that salt is also preservative. In that time, in that age when Jesus was preaching, there was no refrigeration. Salt was the preservative. And what Jesus is saying about that society and that culture, as well as for our society and our culture, and those that don't know Jesus Christ, that the world is decaying. And it's falling apart and it's chaotic. It doesn't make sense. And innocent people are harmed because of the decadence of the world. And we are called into the world as an additive, as a preservative. Because we are concerned because people are truly lost and broken. And that breaks our heart. Not to condemn them, but to help and to give hope. So what does a salty Christian look like? What does a salty Christian look like? First of all, they're not judgmental. They're not condemning. They are not so opinionated that they're oppressive. They don't get lost in all the rhetoric. But they are direct and they are kind and they have strong convictions. And they are loving and they bear the fruit of the Spirit. And what, what gets me sometimes is people have the gifts of the Spirit, but they have no fruit. And if we're in Christ, we should be bearing the fruit. And people should say about us, you know, I don't agree with them. 
I don't know if I even like them. But when they're with me, I know I am loved and I am respected and I am cared for and they want to help and they want to give me hope. And they are brokenhearted for what I am brokenhearted for. And so the question for us is, am I being salt? Am I being salt in the rooms where I am at? A true Christian will always make you feel hopeful. A religious person will make you feel condemned. That's the difference. In the latter part of verse 13, Jesus says this. He says, It is no longer good for anything, salt, when it loses its saltiness, except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, I don't want you to be confused because Jesus is not saying that you've lost your salvation or that you are worthless. But what he's saying is that this is a statement of losing your influence and effectiveness because you've lost your saltiness. And that's super important to understand that, that folks, when we don't, we aren't the additive, when we aren't the preservative, when we don't give flavor in the room, then we lose our influence and the opportunities that are there. So that's the first metaphor that Jesus teaches. And then he goes on and he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And again, in John 8, we know who the light is, don't we? The light of the world. In John eight twelve, Jesus says, And again, Jesus spoke to them and saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you're a disciple of Jesus, if you're a follower and adhere to Jesus' teaching, you will reflect his light to others. Now, we won't do it perfectly. Sometimes we might be a little dim, and I'm not saying you're dim, but sometimes we may struggle in being a good source of light. We may not reflect Jesus as we should, but we will reflect him. In in the latter part of that passage, he says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. city on a hill. And I don't know if you've ever been out west. I've been out on the Navajo Reservation in, in Arizona, and we were 15 miles on a dirt road to a paved road, and we were out in nowhere. And at night, we would hear the Indian drums beating, and they were having their peyote parties, but it was dark. And if there wasn't moon and there weren't stars, you didn't see anything. But out in the distance, if you were at a high enough altitude, you could see a light from a city. And you could orient your path to where that light was. And in the same way, in ancient times, the city lights would allow a person to orient their path. And, and, and you know, church and church family, we are to be a light of the world. And because of our light together, our combined light together, it should be a path that would orient the world 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our purpose as a people, as we gather, that our light shines. Now, let me give you some light instructions. Not meaning light as in low weight, but heavyweight light instructions, if that makes sense. First of all, Jesus says, don't cover your light up. Don't cover that light up. Don't, don't dim it. Don't hide it. Let people know in a winsome, loving kind of way. He says, let your light shine. Uh, Mark Grayless, in between services, he came up and says, uh, he said, uh, remember that old song we used to sing in church when we were kids, the old hymn? Well, this will light of mine, but also brighten the corner where you are. You remember that song? Anybody remember that? Some of you guys don't know very many hymns, I know. A hymn was in a hymn book. I, I, I got, I'll get in trouble if I make anything else. I love contemporary Christian worship. Just so you know. I love it. That's what moves my heart to worship. But don't be noxiously bright. That's the last thing I want to say. I don't know if your dad ever woke you up in the morning and just shook you or I mean, basically turned on bright lights, and when you uh, woke up and the, or your, the, uh, the, the lights were so bright that you saw the little circles, do you remember that, with the bare light bulb, and you kind of, they look like bubbles, and you try to pop them, do you remember that? Anybody ever do that as a kid? Don't be obnoxiously bright. Be considerate of where you are and what you're doing, because your influence matters. Too much salt, if you're just eating a bowl of salt... Or if you're just drinking in a headlight, not so good. But light is meant to what? Expose the darkness, not alone, but to reveal the way out of the darkness. Just enough light to light that path that people might be attracted to the light. Now let me just give you a caution as well this morning. When we're talking about the values of the kingdom, if you don't enjoy living the values of the kingdom now, you won't enjoy living them throughout eternity. I just want to say that. If you don't like being salt and light now, and, and, and you're having a hard time with it, how are you going to do in heaven? These values are the values of the kingdom. And, and that's important that we understand that. So as we begin this new year, I would challenge you, before you make a statement, before words come out of your mouth, as you enter a room, ask yourself, salt and light. Am I being salt? Am I being light? Because the disciples of Jesus Christ changed the temperature of the room. Now, you've all known people that were so negative, so whiny, so grumbling, so complaining, that they would just suck the oxygen out of the room, that it would just dark to the darkest point. Now, that's exactly the opposite of what I'm talking about today. I'm talking to people that should brighten rooms, that the salt should add flavor, and there should be more joy and more hope, and and there should be more help because you're in the room. Jesus goes on in this passage and he said, Do not think that I have come 
to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is a little scary. And Jesus is teaching truth. And I don't think it's hyperbole at this moment that he's, he's not exaggerating us, but he's calling us to a higher level of living that only can be attained by God's grace and through his Holy Spirit. But when the first century people heard, the listeners heard what Jesus said, they were like, whoa, Jesus, these are our standard. In fact, they're professional religious people, and they don't only enforce the law, but they create more laws that we have to live by, which we can't live by already. What Jesus is saying is, that he had a very, very high view of Scripture, a very high view that it wasn't being replaced, but but you were being enabled. And even in that tension, folks, we live in a broken, fallen world, and we are human, and we make mistakes. Every one of us don't deserve salvation. We receive salvation because of his grace, by the blood of Jesus. And that is what saves And Jesus is reminding us in this moment. This is what the Jewish leaders didn't understand. So you might ask a question, why do I believe the Bible? Why, you know, the kids that wrote those essays in regard to the Sermon on the Mount had a low view of Scripture. They didn't understand what they were talking about. But if you've ever said, well, that was then, but this is now, and that doesn't apply, you have a low view of Scripture, and you don't understand that God's Word is eternal, it is perfect, and it is right for every age. And it never changes, it never varies. And so, when you diminish the Word of God, you don't understand that this is exactly what Jesus was talking against had a high, high view for the Word of God and what the Old Testament and New Testament have to say. So as we talk about this metaphor of, these metaphors of salt and light, how do we live salt and light? How do we live that out in our day-to-day? Three ways, and I'm going to wrap up with this. First of all, we live into God's Word. That we have to know it, we have to... To to hear it, we have to understand it. We need to be in church, in worship, under the Word of God, in Sunday school, adult Bible fellowship, life groups, however, whenever. Listen to it on a podcast or however you can take it in. But we also need to live in His presence. And that's what I so appreciate about worship and coming together in this room every Sunday. Dan and his team knock it out of the park every week. And uh, it prepares my heart and my life. I need that. And I need you. I need every one of you physically present. That's a part, you are a part of my life. And you make a difference. 
in, in relationship with me. And, and when we went through the pandemic, I was alone. That was the hardest part, is not being able to connect with the body in a, in a significant way. That was the most lonely I ever felt in my whole life. Because the church has always been a part of my life. And so I can't imagine people living outside of the body and not having the salt and life and, and, and having that family of God. And finally, live to help others. I appreciate the youth ministry, student ministry. I was telling CJ this week, hey, you know, they've done some super service projects. The hardest thing to do in youth ministry is to get kids out and to serve others. But, but that is what we're called to do is to serve others. I'm, I'm preaching a, a funeral today. It's Valida Eldridge's. She's a faithful saint of God. And I was told something I didn't know. That Valida, early days, this is prior to a lot of the modern appliances. She, she, when she saw a need, whether it was a family need, a family going through cancer treatments, a mom or a dad, so whenever they were overwhelmed, she'd take a day and she'd just stop her life and she would go and help others. Might be washing clothes, cleaning house, taking care of kids, however, might maybe tending wounds, I don't know. But I wasn't surprised because there are silent saints that serve in, in, in these seats that are all around us that change the temperature of the room and and as that family grieves and as they grieve they grieve with hope but they have what an example of service and of love and that's isn't that what we want to leave that kind of legacy thy kingdom come on earth Will you please stand and pray with me? Eternal God, we are so grateful for your words and, Father, for the Sermon on the Mount and what they mean to us. We pray that we might be salt and light. That, Father, we can't do it on our own. Only by your Spirit, by your grace, can we be salt and light. And our world is dark right now. It's broken. It is divided. And we need you. We need your presence. And Father, for those that don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their life, that have no hope without Jesus, that Father, that you would penetrate their hearts, that your Holy Spirit would woo them unto yourself, that you would do the work that only you can do. And Father, we give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.